Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about working with professionals to give them the tools to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And today we're going to be talking about one of the absolute most basic things that every business must have, but to be honest, many businesses get it wrong, and that is their brand. Um, you know, and, and so please join me in welcoming Lindsay Peterson to our program today. I'm so happy to be talking to you today, Deb. We really, you know, this is going to be one of those programs that I hope people listen to several times because it provides, it's, we, I know that we're going to provide just absolutely fabulous information today. Wonderful. Great. Well, before we jump in, let me tell people just a little bit about you. So Ironclad Principal Lindy, Lindsay Peterson is a brand strategy consultant with a scientific growth-oriented approach to brand building. She has advised companies from burgeoning startups to national corporations, including Zulily, Starbucks, T-Mobile, Coinstar, and IMDb. Lindsay's background as a P&L owner at Clorox fostered in Lindsay a deep appreciation for the executive's charge, increasing the company's value. There, she led mature, billion-dollar businesses and newly launched categories, from Clorox Bleach to Armorall to Brita. In each case, she was solely responsible for increasing the business's value. Thanks to this executive perspective, Lindsay demands that brands be hardworking, disciplined, and rigorous in growing a business. Her brand strategies are tested in the crucible of her proprietary ironclad method. Lindsay arms leaders with a powerful ironclad brand strategy so they can grow their business with intention, clarity, and focus. Wow, you know, so impressive, so impressive. That's why I know we're going to have a great time talking with you today, Lindsay. Oh, thank you very much. First, you know, let's define brand because I think so many people think Coca-Cola's brand is their logo and that red color or Nike's brand is the swoosh or, you know, somebody's brand is great customer service. And that's really not the truth. So tell us what your definition of brand is. Yes, it is so true. The word brand takes people to such different places, many of which are really important places, but they're different places. So I do think it's good to start by defining the term here. The brand, the overarching meaning of the brand is it's the relationship between a business and its audience. Okay. So that's, that's what a brand is. It's sort of like the, the sum total of all of the interactions that a business has with its audience. Mm -hmm. So that that's the brand the, the brand positioning is the deliberate exercise of selecting what you want your brand to, what you want that relationship to be. Okay. So what you want to kind of like d- developing a vessel of meaning mm-hmm. be, that, that your business will stand for. Um, so that's your brand positioning. And the, the thing about positioning, the, what's so powerful about positioning is that what it does is it helps your audience, it helps your target customer to understand you more readily so that you will be um, on their mind when they come to think of buying your type of product. So it really is, its purpose is to make your offering easier for your customer to buy. Mm -hmm. So by going through the deliberate uh, thinking to develop what you want your brand positioning to be, you you make it easier for your offering to buy, and therefore you have a healthier business. Right. Well, and unfortunately, I think so many people stumble onto their what they think is their brand. Um, you know, and and so it, they tend to think of it as the product or service, as opposed to the overall concept of everything. And and so many people don't even think about it um, because again, they're thinking, well, it's the logo, it's it's the font that I use. I love right. those people. You know, and, and, and that is part of it because, you know, things like a font can convey whimsical, can convey serious, you know, all these various things. But so many people don't even stop to think about what the ultimate definition of brand is. 
Yes. Yes. And, and I think the, the, that confusion ultimately just makes it more difficult for a business leader to run a healthy mm-hmm. business. It's a brand is a tool and right. it's, it's kind of like, um, in my mind, it's, it's the most useful tool that there is for growing a business with focus and clarity and intention. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't you use it? So if you misunderstand what it means, you're likely to not use it or to not use it in its full robustness. Right. Um, so, and so when you mention you know, the, the, the font and the logo and the personality and the tonality, those are all parts of brand. They are mm-hmm. part of brand. But I think of it sort of like the frosting on the cupcake. Right. And the um, what so there's there's kind of two um, ways that a business leader can misinterpret what brand means or two mm-hmm. basic directions. One is to think that it's that superficial, um, the outer layer, kind of like the painting on the house or the frosting on the cupcake. Mm-hmm. So that's to to miss that brand is really about the crux of the value proposition that a business brings to its customer. That's missing the cake. Right. Um, the The other direction where uh, a business leader can underutilize brand is by thinking that it's only about the product or only about the, the service and forego the power of um, kind of those bonding connectors of a brand's personality, which does include the, the look and feel and the logo mm-hmm. and the font and the tone that a brand talks in and, you know, sometimes like a character like the Geico Gecko, right. those, those are powerful too. So um, I encourage business leaders really to think of it in its entirety because it's the entirety that, that gives it its unique power. Right. Well, and, you know, as, as we were talking about this, one of the things I was thinking is, you know, can a company have multiple brands? And again, we're not talking brand as, as product. And we're certainly not talking about a company, you know, that's that's so big that it has all these different divisions and, and things like that. But can a company have multiple brands? Or is it a brand is the company and then the products and services come under that? Such a good question. I, so there's a couple of there's a couple of layers to this and it kind of keeps getting back to the confusingness of the definition of brand. Um, Sometimes um, one way to think of this is like the business itself is either usually either a brand, what my business school professor called a branded house or a house of brands. So the branded house would be um, like Starbucks. Right. Uh, that is a branded house. It's it's essentially it's a one brand business. Mm-hmm. And then the other end of the spectrum is the house of brands. So that's the Procter and Gamble, right. General Mills, the Clorox, Nestle, uh, where they have maybe hundreds of mm-hmm. brands underneath them. Um, th- so that's that's one distinction. So a business can have multiple brands. Um, if it if it's a branded house, but if you're Starbucks, if you're a if you're a single um, entity with a single name and vessel of meaning to your audience, then that's mm-hmm. one brand. Um, now, not to get too um, down a rabbit hole, but there's also ways that really mega brands like Starbucks can have sub brands. So, right. Starbucks, for example, has Starbucks Via, their mm-hmm. instant coffee, and um, they the different flavors of Starbucks coffee are sometimes reach the sub-brand level. Mm-hmm. Um, for most businesses, though, I almost don't want to talk too much about these um, uh, th- these super specific right. instances because for most, biz- for most of us, we've got one brand mm-hmm. and it's not advisable to have um, a proliferation of sub-brands mm-hmm. or other brands. And the reason, and this is kind of to your original question, the reason is that every time you have an additional brand or another layer or a sub-brand, you're 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 diluting the efficiency of, of the vehicle. Right. So if you've got if you've got two brands, that's two brands that you have to develop a relationship with mm-hmm. on behalf of. So uh, that's sort of I think of that as like a last resort, or for businesses that um, 
are large enough or segmented enough that it makes sense to do that, and if they have large enough budgets to do that. Right. Well, and it's funny because you mentioned Geico, and that's actually what made me think of that question, because Geico is an insurance company. You know, there's the, they while they do have you know little PC parts underneath it, that's what they do. They are an insurance company, but from a marketing perspective, they drive me nuts because they have several different ad campaigns that they do. <laughs> they've got the the caveman, they've got the gecko, they've got some that don't even have any of that. You know, they have all these various things, and I, I agree with the the word that you just used, dilute. You yeah. know, and and then what happens is I get them confused. It's like, well, are they the progressive company or are they because they've not latched on to just one thing? Yeah, and it's an it, that's it's inefficient. And I although I don't know intimately the Geico marketing budget or media plan, my my guess is what they're doing is they're segmenting. They they have a large marketing budget and they have. Um, they have a large number of types of customers mm-hmm. and so they're developing multiple campaigns so that they can optimize one for each type of customer. Right. And there's, there's, mer- there's merit to that. There, there are reasons wh- when that can be really effective. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for most businesses, it's, I, it's kind of like start start with the fundamentals. Like if you want to get fancy like that, like Geico does and you have the budget, to do that and the the size of audience to do that, um, crack that nut later because right. most businesses don't do the first part, which is simply um, identifying what is this thing that we own mm-hmm. that we're really good at, that delights the hell out of our customer, that breeds loyalty. What is that one thing? And to make that the North Star and the rudder for all of your business decisions, like right. do that. And, um, and maybe someday you get to make the decision that Geico made, whether or not to um, proliferate campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, but I almost think like those fancy instances kind of take us away from the the fundamental truth, which is that you have to choose a position. You have right. to choose a thing that you're going to stand for. Um, and, and, and then it, it might someday be prudent to do something like that. Um, but that would be a really great um, choice to have down the line. Right. Yeah. To, to, like you said, to be able to have the budget and the, the resources to be able to do something like that. Um, you know, and, and, and we do it as marketing people to a smaller degree when we do things like A-B testing, um, where we've got, you know, one website, say we've got a website with two different types of landing pages that we send people to from Facebook, you know, which, which got the more interaction, all those various things. But... That's a little subset. I mean, the, the brand itself shouldn't get lost in that process. Yes, exactly. And I'm, gra- I'm glad that you brought up A-B testing because it's so I, th- I think like a, a, a very um, kind of basic tenet that I hold dear is that when choosing your brand positioning, it's actually a, it's actually can be a very scary emotional exercise. Right. And the reason is that especially for a CEO or for a business owner, when you're selecting your brand positioning, you're selecting what you're not going to do. And mm-hmm. I think that that can feel threatening. It can feel uncomfortable for a business leader to, to take things off of the table. And um, so A-B testing, for, for a certain type of objective, I love A-B testing. Mm-hmm. For building a brand positioning, A-B testing is like, you know, it's like, it's like A-B, te- you can't A-B test a marriage. You have, right. to, you have to have a commitment. You mm-hmm. need to commit to it. Um, so you don't, de- you don't A-B test to get to arrive at your brand positioning. Mm-hmm. Where A-B testing can be wonderful is once you've chosen that thing, that is the thing that you're going to own and that's going to be um, your North Star, you can A-B test various ways of manifesting it. So um, you know, if you know that you're going to be the fun insurance company, you could A-B test a gecko as well as you could A-B, you know, that could be the A cell and the B cell could be a puppy. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do that. It doesn't change the the core brand meaning. It changes the kind of outward facing way that that looks. And then you can gather feedback and make refinements. Right. Um, but 
keep A B testing at that level as opposed to at the strategy level. You just can't A you can't A B test your way to a strategy. No. You know, and 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 it, it does. It gets too confusing and then you're not testing A B, you're testing apples and oranges and the data is just not going to be accurate. Yes. And it's not the job of your viewer to tell you what your strategy should be. That's your job as a business owner. Right. So speaking of strategy, you've got some great white papers on your website, which is ironcladbrandingstrategy.com. And and so I was looking through these white papers, and you've got, obviously, a fabulous one on branding. And you talk about how to build a brand positioning strategy. And you've got four steps to it. So let's, let's walk through those four steps. And the thing that I really want to emphasize to people is this is not an overnight process, you know, and in fact, there are companies that are still struggling with what the heck are we when we, you know, what do we want to be when we grow up type of of questions. And, you know, but you do have to take these steps. There really aren't shortcuts is maybe what I'm trying to say. So, you know, the first step that you have in building a brand positioning strategy is who is your target? So talk to us about that. Because we all like to think that everybody will buy everything we have. (laughs) Right. That's right. And that's, I I mentioned, this can feel so threatening at times for a business owner to make a choice of what are we going to be about. And and that starts with who are we going to serve? Who is our target customer? And the way that I think about the target customer is not, but by the way, I think like sometimes it helps CEOs and business owners when I'm talking to them to say, we're not saying that if X person isn't um, included in this target customer description, we're not saying we're not going to sell to them. Right. There's just, always secondary markets. Yes. We're, the, the target customer is a choice of who you're going to optimize for. Yes. So it doesn't mean that you're, going to turn away people who don't fit that description. It simply means you're not going to optimize for people Mm -hmm. who don't fit this description. So the target customer is, and a lot of, a lot of times this is hard. And sometimes for some businesses, this is actually really easy because they, from their very roots decided, this is the type of customer that we're going to serve. We have a lot of heart for the, for serving this, this person, this need, Mm -hmm. um, when it's difficult, I encourage business owners to think, okay, who is the person or the type of person who dis, who we disproportionately serve, mm-hmm. who we bring disproportionate value to, and who brings disproportionate value to us? Mm-hmm. So sometimes that's the person who just badly needs the offering that you bring, um, and the person who um, spends more time and and money or um, resources or page views or what have you on your type of product. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that that's a good signpost to who your target customer is. Um, another way to think of it is um, again back to your roots. What is the mean? Like, why did we go into this business to begin right. with? Mm-hmm. Who, who do we really want to serve here? Um, and and again, you know, just like, just like in, a, in, in darts, how there's a bullseye and you get more points for striking the bullseye, mm-hmm. that's your target customer. You still get points when you, when you hit darts that meet the outer circles of the dartboard, mm-hmm. but, by, but by shooting for the bullseye, you're more likely to get on the dartboard at all. And if you do hit the bullseye, you get more points. Right. So really... Um, Give yourself permission to be super specific here and um, don't don't start your brand strategy development by already diluting by saying we're going to serve everybody or we're going to serve all women or we're going to serve all men or we're going to serve all Americans or Mm -hmm. all Canadians. Um, Get specific because it will the rest of your brand strategy's strength will hinge from how specific this choice was. Right. And of course it is scary for, you know, whether it's a product manager, business owner, whoever, to to focus it into that narrow field, you know, that that bullseye, because obviously there are far fewer people there than in the, the outlying areas. And so they're thinking, well gosh, I'm leaving money on the table, I'm missing people, you know, all those various things. But 
you know, as you mentioned, when you have that focus down well, you might have 90% of the people that buy your product in that bullseye and 1% in the outer areas. And so that's, you know, or they spend far less in the outer areas, things like that. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, and, and it is scary. Um, you know, I've, I've shared this story several times on my program before where I was at a networking event and, and, you know, we had to, you know, go around, stand up, tell people who your perfect client is or, you know, your target customer. And this, you know, person stood up and, and she sold skincare products. So her perfect, perfect target market was anyone with skin. <laughs> of course, that's everyone. You know, and, and of course, we did that laugh that you just did, kind of the ha ha. And, and none of us could think of anybody to refer to her. And it was the funniest thing because none of us could think of people with skin was kind of the, the concept. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so we worked with her to say, okay, you need to fine tune this. And again, it's yes, everybody has skin. So conceivably, everybody could buy your product. But who do you really want to help the most? And she had gotten into the business because she had teenagers with acne. Mm. So that, you know, when she talked about that, and, and so she lit up because she, she went, oh my gosh, you know, I brought the, I bought this product for my son who had horrible acne and was embarrassed to go out in public and couldn't get a date, you know, and all these things. And we said, then that's who you should be working with, you know, and, and so, you know, her target market became teenage boys between 16 and 18 who had acne. And when she said that, every single person knew of at least one person to refer to if they didn't you know, have that person in their family already. So, you know, it, it, it enabled everybody else to help her in a better way. Oh, that's a wonderful example of switching from essentially not choosing a target to choosing one in a really, really choiceful, disciplined, empathetic way. I mm-hmm. love that example. You know, and it really was, you know, it, because she was thinking that she could sell to everybody and, and she could. I mean, you know, it was a great skincare line, all that good stuff, but nobody was referring to her. But when she said 16 year old boys, we all went, oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and then, of course, you know, OK, well, we knew a 16 year old girl. OK, that, you know, all those various things. So you did have those kind of divergent things. But, you know, and, and what was really important was when she lit up, you know, this is why I got into selling this. My son benefited. And, of course, that was the perfect story for her to be able to tell, you know, as opposed to, you know, somebody's grandmother bought it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my son benefited from this. And and people, you know, people then were drawn to that. Yeah. It's so it lends to it lends later down the line after you've developed the rest of your positioning to storytelling. Um, And it, it takes advantage of specificity is how our brains work. We, mm-hmm. we remember um, images. We remember specific descriptions. Right. We remember stories. We don't remember generalities right. or um, platitudes. Right. So it helps us to, it, it helps, again, you know, the purpose of positioning is to make it easier for your customer to see you and buy you. Mm-hmm. So the way that you do that is by creating some contrast, creating mm-hmm. specificity. Right. And, um, and it, it's it's key. So you know, an example like that. Um, think of the implications of uh, selecting something that specific versus selecting something general, like people with human beings with skin, animals. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So you know, teenage boys um, they don't watch TV. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't buy a TV ad. Um, teenage boys. Um, you know, their skin issues are different from my skin issues. Mm-hmm. So the way that you develop the product is going to be different for, for me versus my teenage son, by right. the way, you know? Um, so it, it affects your innovation. It certainly affects like your media buy it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it affects how you're going to sell your product because while I sharp shop at, at Safeway and Walgreens, uh, my teenage son, uh, sh- only shops online, doesn't even really know what Safeway is. Mm-hmm. So it also affects your distribution channels and, all from making that choice of who we're going to disproportionately serve. Right. Well, and the funny thing is, in actuality, it probably wasn't the teenage boy. It was the mother of the teenage boy, mm-hmm. you know, who was going to buy the product and say, here, Bobby, this is, you know, you should try this. Um, because, you know, a teenage boy is going to spend his money on other things, whereas mom is going to go, okay, we want you to have a date for prom. Here you go. Yeah. So, so the way that I 
this is funny because I actually recently bought some skincare products for my teenage son. The, the, the types of the, the, the decision, I mean, the, the emotional decision making that goes into that is very different from the way that I buy skincare products for myself. Right. And tapping into that and um, noting it and kind of holding that is um, is really powerful. So mm-hmm. I, I applaud her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it did work out very well. So now we know who our target is. The next thing is to figure out what business are you in? And it's funny because I laugh when I read that because we're all thinking, well, we're in business. We're in the business to make money. We're in the business to sell skincare products. We're in the business to sell coffee. But that's not really it. So what do you mean when you say which business are you in? Yeah. So, right. So that. And depending on who you're talking to, when you're describing your type of business, you might um, you take into account the, the the frame of reference for the person you're talking to. So if you're talking to an investor, um, you, you might emphasize your business model. I'm in. Mm-hmm. I have a consulting business, or I have a consumer product. Um, when you're talking to the, the the brand positioning, back to its purpose is to make your customer more easily by your offering. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want their, the frame of reference for your brand to be from the point of view of your customer. When your customer thinks of your type of offering, what is their frame of reference? What is it, what is it akin to in their heads? Mm-hmm. So there, there's a very, you know, there's a superficial level to that. It could be a skincare product. Right. It could be, um, uh, it, it, it could be fine food. It could be, you know, that's a, um, that's sort of a category descriptor. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's sufficient, but in a lot of ways, the way that a customer thinks of your offering is more, what would I buy this product instead of this, ah. I would buy this instead of what? So, okay. um, so if you're, um, like to take kind of a basic example, Say you're an iced tea brand. You mm-hmm. sell um, high-end ice bottles of ready-to-drink iced tea. You could say, "Well, we're in the iced tea business," um, or you could say, um, "We're in the beverage business." Mm-hmm. And then you you talk to your your customers, and your customers are actually thinking of you as a, a treat. Um, they have they they drink your iced tea um, when they want to reward themselves mm-hmm. in, in kind of a healthy way. So you're actually in the treat business. Um, you're actually in the you know reward business. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're skincare, you might be in the self-esteem business. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be in the skincare business, but you might actually be in the popularity business. So um, the the idea here is to be really really honest with yourself mm-hmm. about how your customer views your type of product what they would be buying it instead of. Um, because if you can get nuanced here, it helps them to, again, have that easy way in to buy your, to buy your product. So um, um, if you're, I, I recently made a luxury a purchase for a health and wellness product that was several thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, because I bought that product, I didn't buy myself a really high-end uh, Louis Vuitton bag that I was thinking of buying. Mm-hmm. So the frame of reference for that health and wellness product was for me as a customer was, um, luxury products, right? Um, they are in the luxury product business, not just the health and wellness business. So, mm-hmm. um, get, get really honest and get really, really empathetic. What does your, what does your target customer, um, really view you as? Right. Um, because, Again, just like the choice of target customer, this choice also is fundamental when you go on to the next step of identifying your your key value in that frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Right. And this naturally leads us into the next step, which is what is your unique benefit? You know, what is it that you're providing that somebody else can't? Yes. Yes. So... So notice we, we started with the target customer. 
Mm-hmm. And then we went to, okay, for this target customer, what is their frame of reference? What type of purchase is this? And only then did we get to what is our unique benefit to this target customer who has this frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Isn't it so important to have those first two steps first? Is mm-hmm. choice of benefit, your is your unique benefit, you need to know what are you unique from? What are right. you pushing against? Mm-hmm. On a differentiated benefit, but differentiated from what? Mm-hmm. So if, you know, again, is this, this iced tea example, if I were just differentiating from iced tea brands, then I might say I'm the iced tea that uses all organic ingredients Mm -hmm. Um, or I'm the iced tea brand that um, has this very funky flavor profile. Um, That might be really relevant if my target customer was actually comparing me to other iced tea brands, but if they're comparing me to um, a dessert or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, um, um, a soda um, or some other treat that's in their portfolio of treats, then um, funky flavor profile is not meaningful. Right. So it's really important to get that frame of reference. And then you say, okay, what do we uniquely bring given this frame of reference? Mm-hmm. Um, so what is our uh, special distinctive meaning? And this is mm-hmm. in some ways like th- this is... Um, um, I call this the brand promise. Mm-hmm. It also, you know, for, for somebody who's not in the brand world, they might call it the value proposition statement. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, somebody who's um, in the world of leadership training might call this the, um, you know, the crux of your business. What right. is your unique offering? Some people call it your moat. Um, mm-hmm. But it's this, what is the what is the thing that's super meaningful to your customer that you're really good at delivering mm-hmm. um, given the frame of reference that your customer is bringing to this decision? Right. You know, and, and it is tricky because the, the problem is we think we know these things, but in many cases we don't. So how do you find out? all of these various questions. Yeah. Yes. So the, the short answer is you talk to your customers constantly and you sometimes like if you're a really small business, this might be a very scrappy, you know, you pick up the phone regularly and you talk Mm -hmm. to customers, you actually talk to your customers um, or you, or you watch your customers when they're in the setting where they're using your product or buying your product. You just mm-hmm. observe them. Um, you know, if, if you want to get more, if, if you, if, if you own a larger business, you might want to hire a researcher to, um, to do ethnographies, to watch your customers, to talk to your customers. Um, the, in, in some ways, the tool that you use to do this is less important than the mindset that you bring to it which okay. is a mindset of like being super open and super mm-hmm. humble um, uh, that you're, you're watch you're, you're bringing this like keen curiosity to mm-hmm. what is the experience that my customer is having. And when you can be that open to it and you can really listen and hear them, um, you can get really powerful nuanced insights. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so the short answer is ask them, like be talking to your customers all the time mm-hmm. um, in, um, in a mode of what can I learn here? How can I better serve these people um, who, you know, I'm asking this person, this customer, this prospect to part with their hard earned money to buy my product, to buy my service, my offering. So, Um, So I need to come to this exchange with a lot of humility and openness and curiosity to really hear them Mm -hmm. and, and, and be willing to change my mind. um, If, if it turns out I was going down the wrong path. Right. Well, now one of the things though, that I imagine happens, you know, and, and just because this would be what would happen with me is I kind of what you said, I'd be scared to ask those questions. And more importantly, People might give me the answers that they think I want to hear 
as opposed to the the truth. And so I'm assuming that's why it it is, you know, in, in many cases, very beneficial to work with a firm like yours. I think so. It's interesting because I, I think you're right that there is a um, research uh, and in particularly qualitative research, which is what we're talking about here. Very open ended questions. Mm-hmm. It is it is an art. It, it is an art. And to watch somebody who's really good at this is uh, a real joy. Um, mm-hmm. um, and on the other hand, and, and I do think that it's good, especially if you have a brand that you're trying to build or that you're going to invest a lot in, I do think it's a good idea to bring in a partner, whether that's a brand strategist like me or whether that's a research, um, you know, like a focus group facilitator. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that that can be very powerful. Um, I And at the same time, I also think that you should, no matter your budget, you should be cultivating in yourself the this art form i think that it separates good business leaders from great business leaders to be always listening to the customers and always open to hearing what they're saying and curious about it Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're really coming from a place of curiosity and openness and you're really you know you're asking open-ended questions not close-ended questions um uh you can disarm the people that you're talking to to get them to talk openly. It's really, I think, when um, there's a posturing that people feel like they have to give you what what they think that you want to hear. And if you don't feel like you can do this, that is when it's good to bring an outsider in. Because a researcher, um, uh, especially if it's a, a researcher who does work in lots of different types of industries, they're trained to put mm-hmm. these. They're trained right. to um, ask questions in a way that really gets at the the heart of it instead of um, kind of feeding them the answers that you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's obviously a lot of different methodologies. You know, somebody might not want to speak with someone face to face, especially yep. if there might be some negative things that they're wanting to say. But a survey that they can complete anonymously online would work, you know, in, <coughs> excuse me, in many ways just as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that you're right that the um, the the research methodology itself can help, and this this depends on the type of product. A lot of times, it's it's interesting you're bringing this up because I've noticed lately that I prefer to do one-on-one interviews in a phone call than to have face-to-face or to have mm-hmm. focus groups uh, for this reason that it seems to make people feel safer. Um, on the other hand, there are some times when I like focus groups better. Um, sometimes that group um, energy gets people to talk about something in a way that would be hard to do if they're if they're the only one on the phones. Mm-hmm. So there's there's merit to both of those um, surveys. Things that are written, I'm um, I like those for product refinements. And I even like them sometimes for messaging refinements, but I, mm-hmm. I don't like I don't like things that are close ended. If I'm really trying to figure out what the hypotheses are to begin with, so right. you know, like the the gold standard is you start with qualitative, so you start with mm-hmm. interviewing or focus groups to really understand the territories, and then you do something more close ended or more quantitative, like a survey um, to. Um, to get more empirical robustness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like with all that money that you have left over, having just done both of those things, then right. keep going back and doing qualitative again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't like, go- I do not like surveys at the beginning of brand um, positioning uh, development because it, it leads to more close ended kind of narrow. It, it, it serves to narrow rather than to mm-hmm. broaden. Um, right. Not everybody agrees with me on that, by the way. That's that's my opinion. Um, but I, it, I think because it can be so expedient, it, it's overused. So just mm-hmm. tread carefully with that. Right. Well, and, you know, obviously it is an art to write the questions so that, as you said, they're open-ended as opposed to leading someone in the direction that you want them to answer. Um, you know, and, and, and surveys are tricky things. You know, I, I did one the other day for a hotel that I had recently stayed in. And, of course, one of the questions was, you know, about the, the friendliness of the front desk staff. 
agree, disagree, you know, or rate them 10 to 1 or whatever it was. Well, two of the people had been really nice and one person was horribly snarky. Well, did that mean that they got kind of a two-thirds right? (laughs) And, you know, and, and, and when you're talking face to face with someone or on the phone, you can start picking up those nuances, you know, that pause, you know, and, and so then, then, you know, to say, well, tell me more, you know, why, why did you feel this way? Or, you know, some things like that. And, and of course, obviously face to face, you really can pick up on those, you know, those uh, body language things, you know, they might say yes, but they've leaned away from you and crossed their arms, you know, or whatever it is, or, you know, in a focus group, you know, you mentioned the dynamics, those are always really entertaining to watch those to see, you know, is somebody really leading the group. And, you know, and, and all those various things. So it's it's something I find it fascinating to, to go into that. And, um, you know, it, but it is something that truly takes a skill to to interpret. Otherwise, you're going to get answers that could be completely off base. Yes, that's exactly right. So, you know, one of the things that I was thinking of is, as we were talking about this is, you know, you've built this brand. You've nurtured this brand. This brand is your baby and something happens. You know, and, and, and we've seen it happen too often where, you know, all the work you have done in the world comes crashing down very quickly. Um, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about are like celebrities. You know, they've got this brand. You know, maybe they're a sports figure, whatever. And something happens. Um, you know, it, it, the, uh, for, you know, I was listening to the radio the other day and they were talking about Bill Cosby. Yeah. You know, he is definitely one that, as you know, in my youth, he was Fat Albert. He was the Cosby Show. Fabulous. Absolutely, you know, everybody's dad. And <laughs> to say his image is tarnished would be an understatement. Um, you know, or United Airlines, where, you know, one viral video makes the entire thing come crashing down. So what can a company do to to protect that brand? Yeah. Yeah. And I just yeah. opened up like a, a four-hour program, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, a couple of layers to this. Um, One is that nowadays, because of the kind of democratization of media, Mm -hmm. um, people know that, you know, now there's such thing as a viral video. Um, So it's the the idea of, um, of congruence between what you say you are and what you actually are is um, there's like a magnifying glass on that connection mm-hmm. that is new to humankind. You know, in a lot of ways, this is a new standard of um, transparency that um, people who own brands now have to contend with. Mm-hmm. So that's like, you know, in other words, um, it's harder now, not because brand strategy is harder, but because, um, uh, because you can't hide things anymore. So right. that's like, that, that's kind of one layer to this. Um, on the other hand, I think an, another it, layer to this is, um, the, and I, I suppose it's also about alignment between what you say you are and what you actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, the, outward expression of a brand, whether it's an advertising or a customer service call interaction or a flight attendant um, beating up a passenger, those are all expressions of a brand. Mm -hmm. And um, when a brand strategy is crystal clear and specific, it's a lot easier to have congruence to that than if there's no choice that was being made to begin with. Right. So I'm not I'm not going to say that United wouldn't have had the problem that they did if they had a stronger brand strategy. I'm not sure if that's true. I don't, I don't know enough about their brand strategy, Mm -hmm. Right. but I would say that what happened is a reflection of, um, a kind of profound lack of alignment between the outwardly stated values and the actual experience of at least this passenger. And it's Mm -hmm. more than just this passenger Um, so it's almost like we're seeing more of a symptom of a lack of choice, a lack of a brand strategy, um, as well as a lack of, of explicitly activating that strategy consistently, incredibly with customers. Mm -hmm. So 
that's I think that's the role that brand strategy plays in this. It's almost more like preventative of mm-hmm. fiascos um, right. than than once you've already kind of um, destroyed your brand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, you you can't put that back in the bottle. Right. You know the genie's out there. Yes. That that's that's right. That's exactly right. Well, and, you know, so many times we see the, the fact that, you know, there, you, you know we're going to use United as an example, just hypothetically, because as we mentioned, we don't know the specifics, but they might have this great brand strategy at the top. And the problem was it didn't get down to the worker bees, you know, and, and so how does a company and whether it's, you know, you've got one, well, one employee, you, you'd better be able to go top to bottom. But if you've got more than one employee, how do you make sure that everyone in the organization and you know, I'm also going to put nonprofits in here and things that we volunteer for, because, you know, they all have brands, you know, and, and so how can people make sure that that brand strategy is throughout the entire organization? Yeah, it's so it's a great question. And it's a it's a place where um, even the great companies, the great businesses of the world um, struggle sometimes. I think so I have kind of a hack answer and then I'll then I'll back up. So like a really, really useful tool for um, expressing your brand, especially internally to to um, to your employees and partners is with a phrase that is a rallying cry. Mm -hmm. Um, so it could be just a, um, a a set of words that you use internally to, um, uh, kind of galvanize energy toward your brand. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm surprised by how little that tool is used because it, it's a way like to, to distill the brand to a phrase, or sometimes this is actually the, the over customer facing tagline, even, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, for United, it would have been at one point, fly the friendly skies, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and friendly was the key word there. Yep. Yeah. That would have been, that would have, that would have reflected that that was the strategic choice that they had made in their brand strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so using a rallying like that visually, verbally, overtly, implicitly um, for a leader. I think that is very, very powerful and underutilized. Mm-hmm. And it's it's powerful for employees. It's powerful. It, it's very hardworking for, for customers. It's kind of like, you know, the tagline for your brand, I think of as a very valuable piece of real estate. Mm-hmm. And it's often neglected altogether or um, they put, you know, it's the only thing more valuable in terms of real estate for your brand is your name. So right. the, the, the tagline should be given almost as much energy and thought and airtime as your, your brand's name. Mm-hmm. So that's one um, kind of quick thing that I think is very useful for businesses to do big and small. Um, the other thing that's harder, but ultimately more sustainable and more uh, or, or more um, deep is walk the talk. So mm-hmm. um, so I always say, you know, a, a brand strategy, we, we learn in business school that uh, marketing is four P's. It's the product, it's the price, it's the place and the promotion. It's mm-hmm. not just the outward, the, the way that the business is promoted. It's not just the advertising campaign or the logo or the font or the tagline um, and all of those great things that come under the promotion bucket. It's mm-hmm. so your choice of, of product and how you innovate. Um, it's, it's the way that you price your product. It's how you distribute and sell your product. And yes, it's also your promotion. So mm-hmm. When employees see the leader, um, their their CEO or their business unit leader, their business manager, their head of marketing, if they see this leader making hard choices according to the brand strategy, um, it, it dramatically improves the buy-in and credibility among the whole. Mm-hmm. It's easy for a CEO to say yes to things, but when a CEO says no, we're not going to innovate against that because 
that is not consistent with our brand strategy. What we are going to invest in is X because that will help us to deliver in spades on this promise that we're making. So making the hard choices according to the brand strategy, making them publicly, and the more specific they are, the more credibility that they yield. Right. Well, and, you know, it's the, as we said, you know, the walking the, the talk talking, walking the talk. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, and, and it is, you know, it's, it's that high level person. You know, I was thinking of, you mentioned him earlier, Elon Musk. You know, what if we, you know, we, we saw that, oh my gosh, he drives the biggest gas guzzling SUV that is out there, you know, and, and his carbon footprint is just gigantic. And, and, you know, he's the biggest energy waster in the world. Well, then we're going to look at his company very differently, you know, and, and I think that's sometimes, Especially with people, you know, they have their business persona or their public persona and their personal persona, your private persona. And I see that especially on social media where people will say, you know, here is my private space. And, you know, we're not saying this, you know, this happens all the time. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just, you know, something to think about. They will say on my personal page, I will voice my personal views. I hate ex-politician. I don't love cats. You know, all these various things. But then their public persona is very different. And, you know, it's and to me, that's ultimately a brand mismatch. You know, I and and so it's and that's what's difficult for folks is is to really think what you know, what are people going to see of me? You know, if I'm, you know, in Walmart in my house slippers, if I'm the person who is is always selling luxury clothes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a it, it's kind of like fundamentally disrespectful to your audience to show them two sides and expect them to be able to reconcile it and not right. be um, and not find it disingenuous. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, absolutely, I mean, there needs there there needs to be alignment between what 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 you say you're doing and what what you state is a value and what you're actually living, um, mm-hmm. and again social media just makes the bar, uh, tougher. Um, right. but it's, it's just, you just have to be more aligned to it. Um, mm-hmm. because there are more chances for people to, uh, to spot dishonesty than there used to be. Right. Well, and, and it's funny because right here in front of me, see, knock, knock right there in front of me. I have your white paper open called writing the tsunami, harnessing the power of social media. And, you know, it's it, obviously I, I like it. It's it's a you know very great piece of, of information. Of course, you know the the problem with social media is we're just one voice in hundreds of thousands of millions of of whatever, and people get it wrong. You know, I'm forever in a day. People are telling me, well, I'm not going to have a Facebook page because somebody might say something bad about me. Well. If you're thinking they're saying something bad about you, they're probably already saying something bad about you. So don't you want to be there to try to fix it? Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, this, I'm just not going to be there. I'm going to bury my head in the sand or I'm only going to be there as the company and not have a personality or anything like that. That doesn't serve the right purpose either. Right. I think that, um, I think that there's sort of a naivete in, um, burying your head in the sand to social media, it's there. So, um, and it's, you know, just like any source of energy, just, you know, electricity or fire, it can be used for good or ill. Right. Um, and it's up to you to make it productive. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, part of that is actually participating in it, right. All together, you know, right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then another part of that is congruence between, um, what, what you are and what you say. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, you know, you can decry it, you can, you can be outraged by it, but it's there. So Mm -hmm. competitors are using it. So, (laughs) right. Well, and I love this quote that you've got. You say, if your social media gives something valuable to fans and followers, it builds trust and credibility for your brand. You know, so why not use that tool that will help build your trust? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's an opportunity to provide value to your audience. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity to be of service. And when you, um, just like it, you know, again, a brand is a relationship between Mm -hmm. a business and its audience. 
um, it's it's a way of paying some deposits toward that relationship. Right. Um, when when you can give a gift, why wouldn't you? And mm-hmm. especially when again, you know, you, your your business model is predicated on your customers are going to be willing to part with their money for your service. So you need to provide them with value. And mm-hmm. um, part of the value is, of course, there's there's the actual overt product that the person is buying, which may or may mm-hmm. not have a digital component. Um, but there's all of these surrounding um, tools that can also provide them with value. So um, social media is, is, is simply a way, it's a channel to your, to your audience. So right. not, not to use it seems like um, um, a, it's, it's just a miss to, to mm-hmm. use social media. It's, it's a way that you can serve your customer. It's a way that you can bring them value and delight. And, oh, by the way, in the process, you might thereby be improving your value proposition and your competitive um, insulation by bringing them that unique value. Right. Well, and of course, to me, one of the cool things about social media is you have your fan base who are hopefully your tribe of supporters. So, you know, you can say, I have this great product. Okay, everybody goes, yeah, right. Of course you're going to say that. But if your fans and your followers say, oh, my gosh, you have got to work with Lindsay. Here is how she helped us. That's so different, um, you know, and, and, and that to me is, is one of the true values of social media. Now, are you going to have people that say, this was horrible, this was awful, it was the worst experience I had? Sure, you know, hopefully not very often, but then use that in a positive way. You know, first apologize to the people, oh my gosh, we're very sorry that happened, and then try to fix it. You know, the worst thing is to ignore it or to try and take it down. You know, I have had clients before that will get negative reviews. You know, you can do five star, you know, one to five star reviews on Facebook. And when they had twos and ones, they said, we'll take them down. I said, well, Facebook doesn't work that way. You know, it wants unbiased. So you have to have the negatives along with the positives. But the key is how you deal with those negatives. Yes. It, this reminds me of of the discussion we were having about the choice of target customer and when you're mm-hmm. doing qualitative research this all comes back to humility. It, right. it, it all comes back to having a true curiosity about mm-hmm. your customer. And so if you're coming to your social media feed and you're seeing something negative from a customer, um, if you're coming to that with your hackles up, um, you know, without curiosity, without openness, um, then you're, you're going to miss it. Uh, right. If you come to that with curiosity and humility and openness, you actually don't see it as a uh, threat. You see it as a gift because right. it's a learning experience. You've just learned something that can mm-hmm. improve your relationship. That feedback is a gift if you if you come at it with humility and curiosity. And it, and if you if you do come at it with humility and curiosity and you take it as the gift that it is, you actually can now improve your brand. You can improve mm-hmm. the relationship by um, what you do with the feedback that you just received. Right. Well, Lindsay, holy cow, we are at the top of the hour. So tell folks, you know, we've, we've got about a minute left. Tell people how to reach you and, you know, how you can help them. Oh, thank you, Deb. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. For your listeners, I would love for them to engage with me on my website, which is ironcladbrandstrategy.com. There is a way to sign up for a monthly uh, newsletter that I send out with kind of frequently asked questions about brand strategy. And I would love to um, be able to connect with them in the future with those. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Lindsay Peterson is um, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y and Peterson is P-E-D, like David, E-R-E-N. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I would just be delighted to be able to stay in touch. Perfect. Well, Lindsay, this has been fabulous. And, and I hope it's made people really think about what is their brand and then are they honoring it and are they working with it in the best possible way? So, again, I you know, hope that people will reach out to you, will go to your website, look at your white papers because there's some great information and great resources there. And, you know, if they need even more assistance, you'd be happy to provide that. That's exactly right. Thank you, Deb. Perfect. 
Well, I've been having a fabulous time talking with Lindsay Peterson today. I am Deb Creer, and until next week, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.